everybody, and welcome back to another biblical episode of The Edmo Show. Uh, today's episode, we are going to cover chapters 23 through 25. Last episode, we kind of got into the nitty-gritty of Abraham and Isaac. We talked about the Abraham's attempted uh, sacrifice in, in his son, uh, but we also kind of went into the the willingness the obedience of of Abraham um in relation to um his sacrifice of his son and his what could be perceived as his comfort be because of some of the statements that he was making as God will always provide and also the stuff um we also see more of Sarah's unsavory character uh, especially in the regards to Ishmael and Hagar to the point where after Isaac was born, um, well, uh, after reading Dennis Prager's book, they talked about the weaning process when Isaac was about two years old. Uh, Sarah demanded that Abraham send Hagar and Ishmael away as to not share in the inheritance of Isaac God steps in and kind of pretty much backs her up and we kind of see a little bit of of remorse from from Abraham for having to send his son away so we kind of get get the feeling that he did have affection for his own child we see uh how Hagar kind of lost faith a little bit she she uh after they ran out of food and water, she pretty much left her son to die. And God had to step in, or an angel had to step in and tell her to go back and kind of take care of her son. And a well appeared, so they she ended up uh, taking care of him. And then they kind of sped up his story where they kind of gave us, like, you know, uh, a little pick-me-up, like, oh, he was okay, um, Later on, as he grew up, he became a really good hunter. He became an archer, and his mom got him a an, an Egyptian wife. Then, as we as we go on, um, we hear about his brother having children and stuff, and uh, and they mention a woman, which, as we realize. Not too many women are really mentioned in the Bible, uh, or at least in Genesis so far, unless they play an important role. So we hear about Rebecca. Um, they didn't really give too much about Rebecca, just the fact that she is um, that she's uh, uh, the daughter of Bethuel and Nohar and um, and all that other stuff. But an uh, interesting thing, as I was reading Dennis Prager's book, he made an interesting note that I didn't, honestly, I've never even thought about. Um, in the verbiage, uh, they never talk about Abraham going back to his, uh, you know, to his, to his wife. They, they talked about him settling in, I believe it was Beersheba. Uh, let me see if I can find the verse. Yeah, it was Beersheba. And he kind of made the mention that that he settled there. Um, and the interesting point where Dennis kind of goes in on the book, um, he talked about how the possible attempted sacrifice of his son Isaac was probably so egregious 
um, to Sarah that they never reconciled. However, she's still referred to as his wife in the later chapters. I mean, in the chapter we're about to get into, um, she's always going to be referred to as his wife. But he inferred that they did not live together, and we're going to see that in the next upcoming chapter. However, some uh, some interesting points where I know I went off on a tangent last time about um, about abortion and stuff like that, and as 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 like I say on many of my episodes. You know, I, I do the editing. So when it comes to doing the editing, I have to <laughs> I have to listen uh, to a lot of the stuff, a lot of the context. And also it helps me as a content creator kind of find points where I did not explain myself or I did not explain a point and I can probably make it into another episode. I can make it into uh, another discussion later. So, uh, and it's also something good, especially with something with the Bible. Like you can always learn something new, even though you've already read something, uh, and especially using good resources like the rational Bible by Dennis Prager, it definitely helps. Um, but I talked about abortion and I got really passionate about it. And I, even though I read, like, I, I always read, uh, the passages that I'm going to discuss, so my process is um, I read the passages. I try to find a really good stopping point for the episode because I don't want to sit here and just drag it on, drag it on. I like to find a good stopping point to where um, we can kind of break down the episodes. And I'm noticing that when we started the Bible series, everything was very fast paced. You know, we had creation. We had Adam and Eve. We had Cain and Abel. Um, then we had destruction. Well, technically, no. Then we had... Um, we had uh, all the lines of Seth. So then we we got to um, we got to Noah. Then we got to destruction. You know, God flooding the world. Then we got to them living on the boat. Then we get to them, you know, finally hitting land. Then we get to all these other things. Like everything is fast paced. But now it's like once we hit Abraham, there's so much detail. There's so much more to the story, and it's like all right. We were able to cover five chapters in one episode because everything is fast-paced. Everything's like a couple sentences, a couple paragraphs here and there. But now, like, we're getting, like, full, like, lifetime movie-type details. And the abortion, uh, as I was listening to it, it kind of went back to— it kind of played into the episode very well that I did not think it was going to play into because when we talked about abortion, we talked about uh, the killing of children and stuff like that. And a lot of times I read these things. I don't really give them any thought. I just read them. And sometimes I give thought. I'll make my notes. Um, you know, I have my notes up here on blown up on the screen because the first couple episodes I was reading straight from the book. And like I said, I have dyslexia. So looking at all, all that information at one point is, it's, it's very nerve wracking as I'm trying to think. So I kind of break them down into slides and the bite size uh, stuff. And I do keep Dennis Prager's book open with me and I just skim through it as I read. Now, uh, reading, Dennis Prager's book, and I'll read that a lot of times, uh, slightly before, at, once I get finished making the um, the scriptures for the episode that I'm reading, um, I'll just read Dennis Prager's book straight through. Um, 
And his book, it does a very good job because it goes verse by verse. However, he'll have pockets of where he'll add tidbits, kind of like this show, and then he'll have like these long essays in between of giving like uh, connecting information from like common studies or uh, experts who have who have spent years like researching and, and doing all this stuff. Um, but the biggest thing that stuck out to me was child sacrifice when Abraham was going to potentially sacrifice Isaac. And strangely enough, I was listening to, um, I was listening to a solid right cross from, uh, from Alfonso Rachel, who's another one of my unofficial mentors, especially in the ways of, of, of biblical stuff. Now, when I was listening to him, it's just strangely enough, I was listening to an audio book. He made a he he made a couple comments about abortion, and then he related abortion to an altar, and he related it because uh, Alfonso Rachel does a lot of political slash biblical um, content, and he he does uh, intermingle the two very well. Actually, I I. I I would prescribe him to anybody. Um, just look him up on on YouTube at the Zoloft. He has um, two audiobooks that I really love: "Weapons of ASS Destruction." And it's not ass. It's a uh, I forgot the I forgot what it meant right now. And then he has a solid right cross. Um, uh, now, when he talked about um, abortion, he he did relate it to an altar, and then instantly, boom, child sacrifice. Abraham sacrificing Isaac on an altar um, for for God. And reading Dennis Prager's book, uh, he, let me see. And it says, verse uh, chapter 22, verse 16, and in Dennis Prager's book, the, the language is a little different. He said, by myself, I swear the Lord declares, because you have done this uh, and have not withheld your son, your uh, your favorite son. And it reads, as noted, every parent who has sent their ch- their son off to war, also not not withholding their son and now daughters. In effect, their child sacrifice is one, un- unfortunately, that reoccurs in every age. The question, therefore, is not whether the parent and society as a whole should ever be prepared to sacrifice a child. The question is whether the sacrifice is morally necessary. God's behavior at the uh, at the story's end makes it clear that not all sacrifice is morally required uh, or morally just. Sacrifice is like idealism. In and of itself, it is morally neutral, not morally positive terms. If somebody is an idealist for a good cause, that idealism will lead to good. But there is plenty of idealism for evil causes. And also, like when he's talking about, um, I remember I was making, I was reading some of his passages when he was talking about child sacrifice. He was saying that it was a test. Um, it was a test for Abraham to differentiate himself from the surrounding people. Abraham has gone through more tests than anybody before him in the Bible. Yes, Noah had to build an ark and all that stuff, but that was it. 
Um, but it was like, no, Abraham has to go through so many tests, so many tests after test after test. And this test really separated him. It, it went from, all right, you have to leave the land of your father, go into a land where you're a stranger, then you had to, um, then you're going to have all these kids, but you don't understand how you're going to do it because your your wife is barren. Then uh, God created, you You create the first covenant where you actually have to shed blood for God in circumcision to differ, differentiate your people from other people. And now you are being asked to sacrifice your own child. However, child sacrifice is was a very common thing uh, in the world. Hell, and it's relatively still is. Um, I, I've, I've read uh, things where they still sacrifice children in like parts of the Middle East, parts of Africa, um, South America. You know, especially with the Aztecs and Mayan and all this other stuff, they, you know, they upheld uh, sacrifice, not in child sacrifice as well. Like it was an honor to sacrifice yourself to the gods. And in this one, God takes something that is common in the world and then tells him to stop. And I guess like that was a way of breaking Abraham away from the rest of the world. And maybe that's why. Um, he was willing to do it, you know. He's willing to sacrifice because this is this was the norm, you know. Normally, kids got sacrificed to their gods. So, and then when he stopped, he stopped, and you know, and and also like it, you kind of got to think about the contradictions also because if God's sitting here promising all these nations and telling you that Isaac is going to be the bearer of the covenant, then why would you have me kill him? But uh, I guess in Abraham trusting in God and, and he was telling Abraham, I mean, he was telling Isaac when he kept asking, yo, where's the goat? Uh, Abraham was like, God will provide a, a suitable sacrifice. So, and as we see later, God does. Now, in, uh, in thinking about abortion and stuff like that, um, Alfonso Rachel comes to mind because when I was listening to it, he was saying, he was relating it to leftism and feminism. And like I said, I'll talk about that on another episode. Um, he was saying on a lot of the things that I was saying, and the funny thing was, I, that was the first time I heard that part of, uh, of the audiobook. And he talked about how People today will sacrifice children for their own selfish desires, whether it be wealth, whether it be education, whether it be whatever. And so it's safe to say that child sacrifice is still happening today. Like I said, um, abortion is one is 100% the intended killing of another human being. You know, I, I try my best to dispel the argument of, you know, the, the medical concerns of it, but it's not, a doctor will never intentionally kill a child if the mother is experiencing some, um, some medical complications on behalf of the pregnancy. The doctor's job will be to try to try to deliver the, the baby by modern medical means. And I kind of wish I would have said it the last episode, but I'll say it this one, this episode. All doctors take a Hippocratic oath. Oh, Hippocratic. Yeah, Hippocratic, where 
they have to swear an oath not to do harm to other people. You can't intentionally hurt someone. And if we understand that an abortion, that you're aborting a baby, a human being, someone who has their own DNA, their own blood, their own organs, they just so happen to be inside the woman's body. And now in some places, they make it legal to kill the child minutes after being exiting the womb. That violates the Hippocratic Oath. That that violates everything that a doctor has sworn um, has sworn them their profession on, and it, it's it, it's it's very interesting because it's you know uh, like I, I I consistently hear um, women like I've even heard a woman that I know recently. Um, we were somehow having a, well, I was in earshot of the conversation. Um, the, there was a joke made that, I guess, because she had an, an a unusual appetite. Um, so someone said, you might be pregnant. And she said, even though she was joking, but it was, it was kind of, it's kind of gut-wrenching. I kept my mouth shut, though. Normally, like, normally I make my, my opinions known. But in this one, I just had to shake my head and just move on my business. But, um. She said, well, if I was pregnant, I'll just go to an abortion clinic and get rid of it. I was like, wow. Wow. Okay. See, and, and again, like, like people today don't see children as, as a blessing or as a continuation of them or any. They don't they see children as a burden, like something that is just, it's in the way. And... This this thought process is very sickening, and and I and I constantly hear, especially young women in their twenties or women that are on the rise, either educationally or professionally, where they look at kids as a burden. Where they, if they just so how just so happen to get pregnant, they're just like, oh my god, my life is over, my life is ruined. It ain't ruined. There's plenty of people that got kids. It, hell. Uh, ACB, Amy Comey Barrett, the new uh, Supreme Court justice, she has multiple kids and two of them are adopted. And she's a Supreme Court judge at a fairly decent age. Like, I think she's in her 40s or something. And you don't just become a Supreme Court justice just by sitting on your hands doing nothing. No, she had to, like, move. She had to do things throughout her life to get to where she is. And to... And to to hear people talk about children the way that they do, especially women, the you know, to me, there's nothing more noble in a woman than being a mother because that's something men can't do. Men, we can fight wars. We can build buildings. We can do all these other things. We can, and, you know, and, and but we cannot, can, we cannot carry a child inside of our body for nine months and then and then our our bodies aren't built to nurture that child up until the point where they need to be weaned you know that that child is is solely dependent on you from the time it's conceived to the time like almost two years old when they're supposed to be weaned off of mommy's milk you know it's 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 very it's very disappointing that this is where our society has come to and 
it's like as I'm going through the Bible, as I'm going through, you know, doing this biblical series, I'm I'm seeing more now than I ever did before. And I didn't have to go to church to do it. I didn't have to have someone preaching at me to do it. I didn't have to pay tithes. I didn't have to pay offerings or all this other stuff. I didn't have to sit here and listen to a hip, like a, 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 a uh, I'm at a loss for words right now. Um, a, a hypocritical pastor, you know, promised me, like, give me all these false promises you know, to, to, to learn these lessons. I literally just went on Amazon. I, I picked the Bible that, that I, that I liked and I just sat and I'm reading this as I'm going through it with you guys. And then I also get additional sources like Dennis Prager. Uh, I watch, uh, Jordan Peterson's videos on YouTube because I think he's done, he's done a, a Bible series from a, um, I believe he's a, a psychologist, uh, a psychology professor. He's doing it from that angle. You know, I'm just doing it from a regular person standpoint who's trying to, who's trying to understand it. And it's like, even I can get it. And yeah, so, um, yeah, that's my, that's my spiel for this episode. But, uh, yeah, um, now I did pregame a little bit, so I may spoil some things. Uh, now I, I will say this is probably the first passage in the Bible, especially in Genesis, where they speak solely about, well, they speak a lot about marriage. Um, and I feel like Abraham, they, they talked a lot about marriage, especially they kept emphasizing his marriage to Sarah. Um, they kept emphasizing his relationship to her and all that other stuff. They didn't really get, they didn't really dig too deep in the ditch or in the weeds about marriage. But in this one, it's, it's very heavy on marriage. It's very heavy on on love and not so much, but it's very heavy on, on marriage. And we'll see, we'll see as we go through and, uh, um, you know, of course I'll take breaks. I'll, I'll, uh, explain some, some parts. I, I'm definitely going to refer to, uh, Dennis Prager's book on this one. Cause he made a lot of interesting points. So we're going to start with chapter 23, Abraham purchases Macpella, And we do have another, um, Hebrew verse, Parashat, Chaye, Sarah, and that translates to the life of Sarah. Now, Sarah was 127 years, the years of Sarah's life. She died in, uh, I'm so bad at pronouncing stuff, Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. Abraham came to mourn uh, for Sarah to weep over her. Now, as, as we see here, that last sentence, Abraham came to mourn Sarah to weep over her. That gives more, um, more leeway to thinking or perceiving that after Abraham attempted to sacrifice Isaac, they no longer live together. While they're still married, they didn't live together. So we're going to move on. Then Abraham arose from before his dead one and spoke to the sons of Heth, saying, I'm an outsider and a sojourner among you. Give me a gravesite among you so that I may bury my dead before my presence. Now, reading Dennis Prager's book, um, I'm going to start with the, 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 first, um, the first verse. 
the number 127. Now, as we, that's an interesting number because, you know, as, as before, like we, we were getting like ridiculous numbers, like 800, 900, you know, all the other stuff. And as we see, like, um, uh, we don't, we no longer see numbers that high anymore, especially after the flood. So Dennis Prager writes about that whole passage regarding the number 127, the number of years Sarah lived, whether or not one takes every lifespan in Genesis, literally the numbers are almost always significant in and of themselves. See the commentary of Genesis 47, 28 concerning the lifespans of three patriarchs. In this instance, the number 127 uh, denotes, um, well, connotes 120 plus 7. 120 was the lifespan God ordained for human beings in Genesis chapter 6, verse 3. Moses' age uh, when he died. And 7 is a sacred number that occurs repeatedly throughout the Torah the days of creation, the weekly Sabbath, and the sabbatical year, etc. If one holds a widely accepted view that the age of the people in Genesis usually conveys meaning, Sarah's age of her death, 120, the maximum lifespan, uh, see commentary Genesis 6, uh, chapter 6, verse 3, concerning the exception to the rule, plus the sacred number 7 means she was a very important person. There is another indicator as well. Sarah, the Jewish people founder, founding matriarch, is the only woman in the Torah whose age at the time of her death is recorded. So, uh, so that was that was that was an interesting uh interesting verse right there because it kind of gives us some context and it kind of leads us to believe, you know, or leads us to understand how important she really was to the story. And like I said, believe, uh, the episode before last where I'm comparing Hagar and Sarah, they kept saying that nations will come from her. Kings will come from her. So that just gives her credence in like her, her status as a woman and her status as a person and her status as a, for a purpose so we're just going to move on the sons of heth answer abraham saying to him listen to us my lord you are a prince of god among us bury uh, bury dead bury your dead in the best of our graves none among us will withhold his grave from you to bury your dead one then abraham got up bestowed uh bowed down to the people of the land uh to the sons of heth and spoke among them, saying, If you are of a mind, let me bury my dead from before my presence. Listen to me. Plead with Ephron, son of Zephar, on my behalf, that he may give me the cave in Machpelah. That belongs to him. That is at the end of his field, at the full price. Let, me, uh, let him give it to me in your midst for a gravesite. Uh, Dennis Prager talks about um, Abraham bowing uh, low before the people of the land. Abraham made uh, sure the negotiation with Ephron took place publicly. Uh, yeah, it took—let uh, me see. Let me. 
Abraham made sure the negotiation with Ephron took place publicly so that others would witness the legal acquisition of the land. The Torah repeats several times throughout the story that the transaction was performed in front of the Hittites to emphasize again and again that Abraham's right to the land was recognized by a local by the local inhabitants. The fact that this land was acquired in a legal sale is subsequently mentioned repeatedly in Genesis. Yeah, so, um, and now that's really going to play a part in it uh, later on because if you guys didn't catch it, he says, uh, he says, at the full price, let him give it to me. So that just means he wasn't expecting to receive it. He was willing to pay for it. All right, so we're going to move on. Now, Ephron was sitting in the midst of the sons of Heth, Ephron and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the ears of the sons of uh, Heth, all those who enter the gates of his city saying, no, my Lord, listen to me. The field I hereby give to you, also the cave that is in it, I hereby give it to you. In the eyes of the sons of my people, I hereby give it to you, bury your dead one. So Ephron was already amongst them, like he was already there. And if you paid attention, he kept saying, give it, give it, give it. I will give it to you. I will give it to you. Um, then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land and spoke to Ephron in the ears of the people of the land saying, and we just talked about that. Abraham wanted to make the declaration or the, the transaction of the land public. So that way there, there could not be, you know, it, 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 it establishes legitimacy. So, um, Abraham saying, uh, but if only you would please listen to me, I hereby give the price of the field accepted from me that I may bury my dead one there. So Ephron answered Abraham saying to him, my Lord, listen to me, a land worth 400 circles of silver. What is that between me and you bury your dead one? So what I'm getting from that is that it, it wasn't so much about money. You know, it, it's like Ephron didn't really care about money. Um, Dennis talks about it a little bit because what I found interesting was that um, we don't really know how much shekels are, but uh, we, we can't really, there's not a clear um, conversion onto how much shekels would be in today's value. But obviously it being gold and silver, and we already know Abraham's wealthy. Abraham got, you know, livestock. He has tons of gold, tons of silver. He's real he's not he's no broke dude, so we know he's good. So uh, uh Yeah, and Dennis actually um when he comments on that, he He's making it sound like, you know, the way that they're talking about it, it's like it's a small sum of money. Kind of like, um, you know, you, you know, you give your friends some money and they're just like, ah, whatever, keep it. Like, they kind of blow it off. Like, but from what he's saying is that it's it's actually not. It's a large sum of money. And, you know, buying, for those of you that buy, that buy properties, y'all know property is very expensive. Then Abraham heard Ephron, so Abraham weighed out. Uh, to Ephron, the silver that he had spoken in, uh, in the ears of the sons of Ephron, 400 shekels of silver at the merchant's rate. Uh, 
now Efron's field that is in Macpella next to Mumre, the field and the cave that is in it, and and all three that are in the fields in all its territory was handed over to Abraham as a purchase possession in the eyes of the sons of Heth before all those who entered the city uh, and entered the gates of the city. Afterwards, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave in the field uh, of Machpelah next to Mamre, that's in Hebron, in the land of Canaan, handed over to Abraham as a grave site from the sons of Heth. Yeah, so um, now Dennis talks about the, the reason why he wants to, um, Abraham wants to purchase the land, and he states that uh, the land is of great importance to Abraham because it was in Canaan. It represents a token title to the promised land and a symbol of possession. And I think that's why Abraham kept emphasizing, like, I'll pay for it, I'll pay for it. You know, like, it's because he, he wanted to establish his legitimacy to, to owning a piece of the land that was promised to him by God. All right. Now we're going to get over to the longest part. Um, yeah, th- this is very, this is an interesting part. And th- this part was kind of, was kind of lengthy. Now, Abraham was old, advanced in his years, and Adonai blessed Abraham in everything. Then Abraham said to his servants that that oldest of his household who managed everything that belonged to him. Now put your hand under my thighs so that I may make you take an oath by Adonai, God of heaven and the God of earth. That you will take, that you will not take a wife for my son from among the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I am dwelling. On the contrary, to the land and to my to my relatives, you must go and get a wife from my son for my son Isaac. But the servant said to him, "Suppose the woman was unwilling to follow me after the uh, after me to this land." Should I then have your son go back to the land you came from? Abraham said to him, See to it that you don't return my son there. Adonai, the God of heaven, took me from my father's house and from my native land, and who spoke to me and made me pledge and made a pledge to me to your seed. I mean, made a pledge to me saying, To your seed, I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you will take a wife for my son from there. If the woman is not willing to follow you, uh, follow after you, then you will be free from my from this oath of mine. Nevertheless, you must not return my son there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and he made the pledge to him concerning this matter. All right. So when I read that, I thought that was like really weird. Like, why? What? What? What significant does thigh have to this whole deal? Like, oh, what are you gonna sit on my hand and make me take an oath? Like, that's very mature of you. But um, Dennis actually explains. He um, he says in the ancient world, men made an oath with one another by holding the person's prized possessions, his genitals. 
<laughs> we get the English word testify from testicle. In other words, in our in our day, we consummate deals by signing contracts and shaking hands. While there was nothing sexual about the rite, this method might have been more effective. But I admit the pro- the preference for a handshake and written contract. So one could one could say that the reason why um why Abraham made the the servant grab his balls was because it was to pretty much uh, no pun in, well pun intended the balls in your court like he he pretty much trusts this person they already emphasized the fact that he was the oldest in the house he manages everything that belonged to to Abraham so that put a lot of faith in this guy's hands and I think it was to stress the seriousness of of the task. So when the servant's asking about, um, like asking these questions about, um, you know, uh, let me see. Suppose she's unwilling. Should I, uh, should I then have your son go back to the land he came from? Well, obviously not. Uh, Abraham, uh, Abraham already knows that the land of Canaan is promised to his family. Pretty much, if if his son goes back to the land of of Abraham's father, how can he inherit the land? And Abraham's already old, so um, he needs Jacob to. I mean, he needs Isaac to stay in the land of Canaan because that's the land that's promised, and that's why he's he's purchasing all these things because he wants there to be legitimacy in his in his territory. So uh, the servant took 10 of his master's camels and left with all the best of his master's things in his hands. Then he arose and went to Aram, Naharam, Naharaim, okay, I don't know, um, to Nahar City. Then he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the evening time the time for going out to draw water. Then Adonai, okay, I think I'm probably missed, I messed up something. Oh, okay. So pretty much the, the, so Adonai, the God of Abraham, my master, the servant said, please make something happen before me today and show loyalty to Abraham, my master. Look, I am standing by the spring of water and the daughter of the daughters of the men of the city are going out to draw water. Now, let it be that the young women to whom I say, please tip your jar so that I may drink. And she will say, drink. And I will also water your camels. Let her be the one you have appointed for your servant Isaac. So by this, I, I'll know that you have shown graciousness to my master. Now, before he had finished speaking, behold, there was Rebekah, who was born to Bethul, son of Melika, the wife of Nahor. 
Abraham's brother, going out with her jar on her shoulder. Now, the young woman was very good-looking, a girl of marriageable age, and she was a virgin. She, uh, she went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. The servant ran to meet her and said, Please, let me sip a little water from your jar. So she said, Trick, my lord. And she quickly lowered her jar onto her hand and gave him a drink. Now, when she finished giving him a drink, she said, I'll draw water for your camels until they have finished drinking. So she quickly poured out her jug into the trough, ran back to the well to draw water, and drew water from for all his camels. While the man continued to pay close attention to her, keeping silent in order to know whether or not Adonai had made his way successful. Now, after the camels had finished drinking, the man took out a nose ring and gold weighing, weighing half a shekel, two bracelets on her hands, weighing them, uh, weighing then shekels of gold. Uh, whose daughter are you? He said, please tell me, is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said, I am the daughter of, Be- of Bethul, son of Melika, whom she bore to Nahar. She also said to him, there is both straw and plenty of feed for us as well as room to spend the night. Yeah, this chapter is very chatty. (laughs) Um, Then the man bowed down and worshiped Adonai, and he said, Blessed be Adonai, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his loyalty and his truth towards my master. As for me, Adonai has guided me to the way to the house of my master's brother. Then the young woman ran and told her mother, uh, told her mother's house these things. Now, Rebecca had a brother, um, and his name was Laban, and Laban ran outside to the man at the spring as soon as he saw the nose ring and bracelet on his sister's hand. And when he heard the words of Rebecca, his sister saying, thus the man said to me, he went to the man, there he was standing by the camels at the spring. So he said, come in, blessed of Adonai. Why are you standing outside when I've tied, when I've tidied up the house and there is room for the camels? Now, I'm going to stop because th- I'm telling you this chapter is very, very chatty. There's a lot going on, um, especially with Laban. Um, it's funny how you see Laban running towards a servant. Now, none of these people don't know um, that Laban, that, I mean, that the, the unnamed servant is actually a servant of Abraham. Laban pretty much just ran outside because he saw all the jewelry that, um, that Rebecca was given from this guy. And um, I'm going to continue. So the men came. So the man came into the house, and he unloaded the camels. Straw and feed were given to the camels, and water to wash his feet and the feet of men who were with him. Food was placed before him to eat, and but he said, "I won't eat until I've stated my business." So he said, "Speak." Now let me see if I can. 
because I, I'm always confused about this whole washing of feet thing. Like, they always keep saying washing of feet, washing of feet. Let me see if... Yeah, he doesn't really explain it in in uh, the book. Let me see if I can look it up real quick. Okay. So I got this from Bible study tools. Um, it says washing of feet, the Old Testament references. It gives Genesis, Judges, Samuel, and Songs of Solomon and uh, Psalms shows that the washing of feet was the first act on entering the, the tent or house after a journey. The Orientals, the Orientals wore only sandals, and this washing was refreshing as well as clean, cleanly. In the case of ordinary people, the host furnished uh, furnished the water, and the guests washed their own feet. But in the richer houses, the washing was done by a slave. Uh, it was looked upon as the lowliest of all services. Um, and he goes on to Samuel. Jesus appointed a contrast to uh, Simon's neglect, or even giving him water for his feet with the woman washing his feet with her tears and wiping them away with her hair. The last evening of the life of Jesus washed the disciples' feet, their pride heightened by anticipation of a place in the Messianic kingdom whose crisis they immediately accepted, expected uh, prevented their doing this service for each other. Possibly the same pride was expressed its had expressed itself on the same evening uh, in the in a controversy about the about places at table. Jesus, oh crap! Jesus, conscious and his divine dignity against Peter's protest, performed for them this lowliest service. His act of humility actually cleansed their hearts and so of selfishness of selfish ambition killed their pride and taught them the lesson of love all right all right so that makes sense it's pretty much like taking off your shoes yeah like taking off your shoes or you know yeah when you walk into someone's house like you want to keep the house clean and stuff but um there's more there's more to that like yeah so Abraham's servant, he said, Adonai has blessed my master very much so that he has become great. And he has given him flocks of sheep and cattle, gold and silver, male slaves and female slaves, camels and donkeys. Now Sarah, my master's wife, gave birth to a son for my master after she was old. And he gave him everything he owns. Then my master made me take an oath saying, you must take a wife for my son from among the daughters. Uh, you must not take a son, 
take, yes, sorry, you must not take a wife for my son from among the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I'm dwelling. Instead, you must go to my father's house and to my family and take a wife for my son. But I said to my master, suppose a woman won't come back with me. So he said to me, Adonai, before whom I've walked continually, will send his angel with you, and he will make your way successful, and you will take a wife for my son from my family and from my father's house. Then you'll be free of my oath. If you come to my family and if they don't give her to you, then you will be free of my oath. So I came today to the spring and I said, Adonai, the God of Abraham, my master, if you are really going to make my way upon which I am walking successful, look, I am standing by a spring of water. So let it be that the unmarried girl who is going to draw water to whom I'll say, please give me a little water to drink uh, from your jug. And she'll say to me, you drink and I uh, you drink and I'll draw water for your camels. Let her be the woman Adonai appointed for my master's son. I had not yet finished speaking to my heart uh, and behold there was Rebecca going out, her jug on her shoulder and she went down to the spring and drew water. So I said to her, please give me a drink and I and she quickly lowered her jug off of her, and said, drink. I'll also water your camels. So I drank, and she also watered uh, the camels. Then I answered her, whose daughter are you? And she said, the daughter of Bethuel and Nahor's son, whom Melica bore to him. Then I placed a ring on her nose, bracelets on her hands. I bowed down and worshiped Adonai and blessed Adonai. The God of my master Abraham, who guided me on the true way to take the daughter of my to take the daughter of my master's brother for his son. So now, if you're really going to show loyalty and truth to my master, tell me. If not, tell me. I'll turn to the right or to the left. Who? That was a mouthful. <laughs> I will say this: this servant is very. Very, very chatty. Dennis made a really good point about why he insisted, um, uh, why he insisted that um, his son does not take a wife from the Canaanites. I'm trying to find it. All right. So it says here, Abraham was not trying to find uh, his son a wife from within the clan, from within his clans. He insisted only that Isaac not marry a Canaanite. The Torah has con- uh, has contempted has contempt for the Canaanites, who were notorious for child sacrifice and other abominations. Later, God specifically commanded the Jews not act like Canaanites. See the example for Leviticus eighteen verse three. The importance of shared values in marriage is clear. To any reader uh, who is or who has been married, me. <laughs> but while shared values are necessary for a good marriage, uh, they're not. They are not sufficient. Two people can share values, but still not love one another. So, pretty much in uh, 
in the whole ordeal, um, Abraham never really told the servant what to look for. He just said, you know, just go find a wife, just make sure she's not a Canaanite. Um, but, uh, it was really the servant who kind of came up with the standard. And I believe like that's what Abraham intended. He, and he entrusted the servant with the standard of which, um, his son's wife would have. And the interesting part in Dennis Prager goes over, um, he goes over it several times in in his book where he talks about while while he talks about the goodness of Rebecca now while he mentioned that she was good looking um you know as as an attestment to her attractiveness that wasn't the only aspect um it was the fact that she was a good person the fact that she would give a stranger, a sip of water, but then also offer to to give water to uh, to his cam- to his camels. And Dennis Prager also attested to the way someone treats a stranger and a way as someone treats animals. And he said these are, and I'm paraphrasing, but these are signs of a good person. While we can act our best towards someone we know or someone we're trying to get something from it is different to act nice or be genu- to be genuinely good to someone we don't really want or need anything from you know rebecca doesn't really want or need anything from um from the servant you know but it was after her acts of goodness towards him by offering him a sip of water then offering to water his camels that the servant actually gave her all her stuff, like gave her all the all the jewelry. You know, uh, Abraham never said, you know, find my son a good wife, just find my son a wife. Like he didn't make any mention, and it the servant took it upon himself to pray and kind of gave the scenarios of which God um, would act upon. Um, and we're gonna keep reading. Then Laban and Bethuel answered. So Bethuel, the father, finally shows up, and they said, "The matter proceeds from the matter proceeds from Adonai. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Rebecca is before her is before you. Take her and go, and let her become a wife for our master's son, just as Adonai has spoken." Now, when Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed down to the ground to Adonai. Then the servant brought out articles of silver and gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave precious gifts to her brother and to her mother. Uh, Then they ate and drank. He and the men who were with him spent the night. When they arose in the morning, he said, let the young woman stay with us a few days or 10 afterwards she may go but he said to them don't delay me since Adonai has made my way successful send me off so that I can go to my master pretty much (laughs) pretty much uh the way this could be perceived and Dennis Prager talks about it was that the family was trying to swindle more gifts out of him um they were yeah they were trying to get all they can get like they they were very motivated by material and it was 
it's kind of like one of those stories that we see where we see this this genuinely good person coming out of this very selfish family and obviously you know rebecca is different from her relatives you know she she's a genuinely good person she just gives for the sake of giving you know she didn't really expect anything in return like she didn't ask for anything the servant just gave it to her however the family you know they hopped on a chance once rebecca got home with all the stuff and then then when uh the servant kind of gave her more stuff and then gave them stuff then they're like all right well maybe we can hold on to her for a little bit um you know we gotta you know we're we're, we're gonna miss her <laughs> so we're gonna move on so they said well call the young woman and let's ask her opinion then they called rebecca and said to her will you go with this man she said i will go so they sent rebecca to their uh they were sent they sent rebecca their sister off with her nanny and Abraham's servant and his men, and they blessed Rebecca and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your seed possess the gates of those who hate him. Obviously, these people are very materialistic. Yeah, especially when they say, When you become, may you become thousands of tens of thousands, may your seed possess the gates of those who hate him. Yeah, her family is, like, very materialistic. <laughs> uh, then Rebecca got up with her maids, and they mounted the camels and followed after the men. So the servants took Rebecca and departed. Now, as we see here, like, uh, yeah, I, I don't want to sit here and just read Dennis Prager's um, whole book, but um, he made a several good points about this about the materialistic nature of of um of Re of Rebecca's family but the interesting point and let me see if I can find it cuz I'm flipping back and forth yeah uh where is it uh all right, here it is. Now, the reason why I didn't really cover this earlier because I wanted I wanted to let the the servant you know kind of shine right now because they keep referring to him as as a servant. They don't really give his name, uh, but Dennis Prager says Jewish traditions hold that this is Eliezer, uh, who is identified in Genesis fifteen uh, verse two as Abraham's chief servant. Uh, there is no uh, uh, there is no textual evidence. For this claim, even though uh, he remains anonymous, this servant deserves to be counted as one of the minor heroes of the Torah. Then he also goes into the fact that he that the Hebrew word for servant is eved uh, is the same as slave, denoting a broad category uh, encompassing many levels of service. Uh, this verse is one of many examples in which slave does not do the word eved justice. This individual is called an eved, um, but he is obviously of very high status. Now, for those of us who live in America, you know, uh, slave is kind of a very taboo word. Um, and the the interesting thing is that 
we can see like in our understanding of slave and slavery is very uh, is a very negative one. That's why I kind of like the fact that they talked about the Hebrew connotations of the word slave, where slave and servant have the same meaning, and. It kind of bad, and I hear people all the time where they say, "Well, the Bible justifies slavery." Well, not really. When um, and Dennis Berger talks about it in his other book in Exodus, which we'll talk about, but a slave denounced that you are pretty much your property. You don't have any dominion over yourself. However, the Bible even has rules on how you should treat slaves. So that kind of negates the fact that you are a slave. You're more like a servant. Um, you know, uh, and, and just in talking about um, this servant, he is like, I would say he's like... Um, Alfred off of Batman. He's Alfred because he has he's 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 a he's a he's a willing servant. He's of high value, of high regard from uh from Abraham and he carries himself in a very noble manner even though he is a servant. He's you know, uh Abraham entrusts him with his best, like his prized possessions to to give to the potential family of the bride of his son. Now, the fact that that Abraham trusts this person enough to put his balls in his hand, the fact that he entrusted this servant to make the decision without any guidance on criteria on what the wife of his son should be, this is no slave. You know, this is not someone who is a lowly person. This is a very valued person to the point where he even checks the um abraham's family like abraham's distant relatives where let me see if i can go back to it uh let me see where was the verse where he says don't delay me like don't mess around with me like that like when we think about slaves we don't ever really think about a slave talking back to someone like that so this is not some some person who has no value whatsoever. This is not someone who is who is treated like property. This is a this is a person with full autonomy. You know, like uh like this person is 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 checking fools like you know, he he's like he has some authority in his in the in his presence. You know, he while he understands that Abraham is is his master is pretty much for all intents and purposes his boss. He's more like a an executive assistant. You know, he's like that person that sits right outside the CEO's door or the director's door and they answer all the calls and he acts as the as the um as the arbiter of who gets to, you know, the big guy. You know, the same way that Abraham acts towards God like as we saw in the last chapter all right uh, all right so let me see but uh like this this chapter really talks a lot about goodness and Dennis really he does a really good job of covering that um uh, with um with Rebecca you know and that can't be overstated enough 
So we're going to continue. Now, Isaac had come from visiting Bear Lahai Roy and was living in the land of Negev. Isaac went to meditate, strolling in the fields at dusk. Then he lifted his eyes and saw, behold, camels were coming. Rebecca also lifted her eyes and saw Isaac. Then she fell off her camel. <laughs> uh, that was funny. Like, who's that dude in the distance? Oh, oh my God. He's so beautiful. Yes, I'll marry him. Even though, and that's, a, that's an interesting thing too. Like we, we, she's never met Isaac before. She doesn't know anything about Isaac. If anything, the servant kept talking about his father. Like this is a this is a, an, uh, an arranged marriage, and pretty much the family just let her go through with it, even though it was her decision, which is a very interesting thing because when we talk about the ancient world and when we talk about all these other things, people have this idea that women don't have any autonomy, women don't have any say whatsoever. Now, even though this is an this is an arranged marriage, she still had a say. They went into it that she had a say because if she didn't want to leave her family's house, she didn't have to. So, um, then, uh, I guess after she collects herself, then she says to the servant, who is that man there who is walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, he is my master. So she took the veil and covered herself. Then the servant, uh, recounted to Isaac all the things she had done pretty much, what that is saying, like the servant pretty much tells Isaac about her character, like all the things she's done, the fact that she offered him water, the fact that she, um, the fact that she offered to water his camels, all that other stuff, pretty much talking about how good her character is. Where is it? So an interesting point that, um, that he, that Dennis pointed out was that this is the first time we're hearing about some sort of wedding ceremony. Um, the fact that, she veiled herself um, before meeting Isaac. And um, Dennis says, Rebecca veiling herself upon greeting her future husband is the origins of the custom of veiling the bride in the Jewish marriage ceremony. So maybe that's the start of the veil. Like uh, traditionally, like whether you're Jewish or not, like oftentimes the the bride comes down and her face is veiled and then the, the groom, you know, removes the veil from her face pretty much uh reenacting this scene where he's seeing her for the first time then it says then isaac brought her into the tent of sarah his mother took rebecca and she became his wife and he loved her so isaac was comforted after the loss of his mother now that's why i went into um I went into this talking about like they really stressed marriage and they really stressed love. Now, technically they were married before he even fell in love with her. And as we established early on that his mother had died. Now the, the, the timeline kind of seems a little janky a little bit, but, uh, but it really goes into, um, in, uh, describing like, the nature of marriage like marriage doesn't always nature marriage isn't necessarily about love now love is very important but you can build love in a marriage 
and Dennis has has talked about it. Um, but I'm I'm gonna put my own spin. I'm not gonna keep reading all his words. But um, love is an emotion. Like in our modern belief, like we we have to feel love before we even get to marriage. However, a lot of I've I've heard of a lot of people, hell, even myself. Um, want to feel this sense of love before we before we walk down the aisle and do all these other things, and then somewhere along the line, the love is lost. So, when you build the relationship on love instead of marriage, like marrying that person, giving that that covenant with that person, upholding that covenant, you, you really have nothing else to fall back on. Now I can say that um, uh, in in my own personal life, I was married before, and I married purely out of love, and I had nothing else to fall back on, and I thought that that was all you need. Now, love does get you through the hard times, but you're not always in love with that person, and it made it very hard um, to kind of to deal with the low points because it, we based it solely off of emotion. We didn't base it off of anything else. Um, now with the misses, as you guys can see, we have a very, um, we have a very interesting relationship, uh, which I, which I'm greatly appreciative of. Like our, our relationship is definitely something different. It's definitely something unique where our relationship and our marriage is based off of our values. You know, we we share a lot of the same values. We, while we may differ in some areas, we at least respect the differences. And we have love in our marriage, and we have love in our relationship. We have love in our marriage. We're going into our marriage um, having love, but it wasn't always that way. You know, it, it wasn't we've had you know we've had ups and downs like any any couple and i'm pretty sure like if you guys heard one episode um where we kind of got into the details of it, there was a time where we split up there was a time where we were not talking there was a time where you know we we things were not good between us but we still had that love there you know that's what brought us back and then right when we got back together and we understood like all right this whole thing right now, we're we're moving towards marriage. And when we first got together, we talked about marriage. Um, however, you know, like most people, you have baggage. I know I did. Um, we we understood like if we're gonna do this thing, we're gonna do it. You know, no matter what happens. Yeah, we put our we put our big oh no nos in there, and but we were like if it. Doesn't matter if we lose love. Doesn't matter if, if if whether your feet stink, whether I just don't like you this month or whatever. Like we're always going to be there together, and and I really credit her for that because that is definitely a testament to her and her character. Um, because she's definitely a fighter. She's definitely a good person. Like like Rebecca, like she. She had the qualities that is needed um, and the qualities that is divinely favored. Um, and Dennis talks about in his book, you know, you can have great looks, you can have intelligence, you can have money, you can have all these other things, but sometimes that's just not enough. Like we, sometimes goodness is 
goodness and and mixed with good looks, <laughs> which the missus has. Um, you know that 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 speaks a lot about a person because I've definitely met people who are very good looking, who are not good people, and they get by on their looks and not their not who they are as a person. And I've seen people who are very smart. I've seen people who are very um who are very intelligent, who are very athletic, who are very gifted, who just aren't good people. You know, and that's not to say that, you know, the 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 my ex-wife wasn't a good person, but I just wasn't her and I just weren't the people that we were supposed to be back then. However, I think the fact that the missus and I are building this, you know, what we have off of off of values, off of standards, off of off of principles. That's why we've been able to make it as long as we did, and we keep making it, and we keep like growing together. So, we're going to continue with chapter twenty-five: Abraham's old age and descendants. Now, Abraham took another wife. Her name was Keturah. She bore him Zimron, Jokshan, Midian, Midian, Ishbak, uh, and Sua. Uh, Jokshan fathers uh, Sheba and Dedan. Dedan fathered Ashurim, Ashurim, uh, Ledeshim, and Lumimim. Okay, these names are weird. Midian's sons were Ifa, Ifa, Efer, Hanak, Abida, and Elda. All of these were Keturah's sons. Now Abraham gave everything he had to Isaac, but their son, but the sons of Abraham's concubines, Abraham given gifts and sent them away from his son Isaac while he was still living, eastward to the land of the east. Okay. Now, one interesting thing that I read in Dennis Prager's book where they talked about Midian, and we're going to fast forward into Exodus, uh, Midian um, is actually the descendant of or the ancestor of Moses' wife. So his wife and, well, her father is a descendant of Midian's, and yeah, it's kind of funny how things come back together. All right. Now, these are the days of the years of Abraham's life that he lived, 175 years. I wonder if he, if he made mention of the 175. Mm. Uh, no, he didn't. Well, at least not that I feel like reading. So Abraham breathed his last and died at a good old age and satisfied. Then Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, son of Zahar, uh, the Hittites, uh, next to Mumre, the field that Abraham is buried along with Sarah, his wife. After Abraham's death, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac lived in Beer Lahai Roy. Now, these are the genealogies of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, Sarah, Sarah's Egyptian slave girl. I hate when they they just threw that in there. Um, Because technically she ain't a slave no more, but she ain't been a slave for a while, but oh well. (laughs) 
bore to Abraham, these are the sons of Ishmael by their names according to their descendants. Ishmael's firstborn is Nabaoth, then Kadar, Abil, Adbil, uh, Mebsan, Sam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Tema, Jeter, uh, Nefesh, and Kedin. These are the sons of Ishmael. Uh, these are Ishmael's sons, and their and these are their names by their unwalled and walled settlements. Twelve princes, according to their clans. These are the years of Ishmael's life. One hundred thirty-seven years. He breathed his last, died, and gathered to his people. Then the dwellings of Hevla uh, to Shur, which is east to Egypt. As you go towards Assyria, over against all his brothers and brothers, he fell. I don't even understand that that last part. I'm gonna have to. But uh, Dennis actually talked a lot about Ishmael because I know I one episode I'm making comment about like the the prophecy that the angel made and pretty much calling uh, Ishmael a jackass, but. Uh, it doesn't really sound like that. Like, doesn't he doesn't make him sound like a jackass at all. Like, like the interesting part that that Ishmael actually came back, and it sounds like him and and Isaac were very amicable. And then uh, one one thing that uh, that he talked about was. Um, Crap, I forgot. <laughs> oh, when gathered to his kingsmen, um, Dennis Prager actually uh, uh, actually talked about the fact that that's, that's actually a prelude to a belief in the afterlife. All right, so we're going to move on. Parashat uh, Toldot, which means generation, we are going to talk about Esau and Jacob. Now, these are the gene- genealogies of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took for himself Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, and, and Aramean uh, from uh, Paddan Aran, the sister of Laban, and Aramean to be his wife. Isaac prayed to Adonai on behalf of his wife because she was barren. Adonai answered his plea, and his wife, Rebekah, became pregnant. But the children struggled with one another inside her, and she said, If it is like this, why is this happening to me? Now, as we can see, like, what we're about to see. um, So she went to inquire of Adonai. Adonai said to her, now this is an emphasis that, as we can recall, God didn't really talk to Sarah like that other than the time when he was at the camp and he pretty much called her out. Um, Rebecca is the, the next person who actually has a, a dialogue with, with God. And Dennis talks about the fact that at this time, Isaac never talked to God. Rebecca actually talks to him. And it's going to come into play later. So Adonai said to her, the two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from your body will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other. 
but the older will serve the younger. Uh, when her time came to give birth, indeed, there were twins in her womb. Now the first came out reddish. All of him was like a fur coat, and they named him Esau. Afterwards, uh, his brother came out with his hands holding uh, Esau's heel. So they named him Yaakov or Jacob. Yaakov is the Hebrew version. Uh, Isaac was 60 years old when he fathered them. Uh, and I also think this is the first time twins were ever mentioned. All right. When the boys grew up, Esau became a man knowledgeable in hunting and outdoorsmen. Now, Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for wild game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now, Jacob cooked stew when Esau came in, uh, came in from the field. He was exhausted, so Esau said to Jacob, please feed me some of this really red stuff because I'm exhausted. Esau sounds like a dick. <laughs> um, that is why he is called, he is called Edom. So Jacob said, sell me your birthright, sell your birthright to, uh, to me today. So pretty much is like they're having that, that sibling squabble. So Esau said, look, I'm about to die of whatever uh, use this is to me, a birthright. So Jacob said, make a pledge to me now. So he made a pledge to him, sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread, lint and lentil stew, and he ate and drank. Then got up and left, so Esau despised his birthright. So, which is an interesting little tidbit. Um, I'm about to wrap up, but... uh. So it sounds like, as we as we heard the prophecies from God, pretty much the older one is going to be stronger. So Esau is clearly like the alpha male, and he's like the alpha in the in the litter. Jacob is a little bit more docile. He's a, he's a little bit more of a homebody. He he's pretty much a mama's boy, for all intents and purposes. Um, like he's a little bit more domesticated, and like any. Like we see in stereotypical movies and TV shows, like the dad is really taken to like the rough and tough son. And in his mind, um, you know, uh, Esau is going to be the one to inherit, you know, the covenant. However, God tells Rebecca and not Jacob that, I mean, tells uh, Rebecca and not Isaac that Jacob is actually supposed to be the one um, in the prophecy. So they pretty much, Jacob's aware of this. I believe um, he's aware of it, and it's kind of like they—they they just having their little sibling like beef or whatever. Like you know, uh, Jacob really wants to be looked at in his father's eyes. Like, however, Esau's taking it, and it, Esau doesn't really care. Like he doesn't really care about any of it. So I mean, yeah. And Dennis made a, an interesting point about. Um, uh, Let's just say you have two sons, like you have a very prized possession, and you give it to one son just because he's older, and but the younger son actually really appreciates the thing that you're giving. So it's like you're going to give something to a son that doesn't appreciate it, while the younger one who really appreciates it, you should just give it to him. 
But also, uh, he made a he made a really good connection that Genesis really pays more focus to the younger son and not the older son. And typically, we think the older son is supposed to inherit everything from you know Cain and Abel. Um, you know, obviously Ishmael and Isaac. You know, it's always the younger son that's actually inheriting something. So that's an interesting point. But uh, yeah, so we. This episode was very interesting. Um, it was very short, but very detail-oriented. Uh, we, yeah, we actually covered a lot. Um, so um, what do you guys think? Please let us know in, um, in the, in the, in email form, whether you can, you guys can email the show at gmail.com or you guys can ask a question. Uh, join us on Facebook at the Edmo Show Listener Group. Um, you know, if you guys want to mention anything, if you guys want to drop memes or drop, you know, ask a question, we'll feel free to join the conversation. We'll answer them. Um, but yeah, I really like this. The story it was a little bit. Some of it, I, I, I honestly, I don't remember. Um, but uh, yeah. So uh, we'll see you guys next time. Make sure you guys uh, support us on whichever platform you feel fit, whether it's Anchor, whether it's uh, Patreon, or you guys can also visit the Teespring show. You guys can get the Shoot to Shoot, the Bigger Better Deal shirts. Um, just help us, you know, uh, fund the show so that way we can get better equipment. We, that way we can make better T-shirts, better content. So uh, until then, I will see you guys later. And when I Bye. say hold it, Phil, I want all of you get ready to stop.